Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watts and I am not here with Callum Roper. Hello there everyone. And Bradley Alsop. Hello everyone. So it is now Sunday the 17th of May, one week after our last broadcast uh, and also the last broadcast of the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, his last slightly garbled speech to the nation at which the uh, advice to stay at home was apparently uh, set aside, provided that um, uh, you can go to work uh, or not go to work, as uh, as Matt Lucas so uh, eloquently parodied it. We are now in a situation where, and it's very interesting for me, um, I live on probably the busiest roads in Lincoln. And during the lockdown, whereas you would see probably about 100 cars a minute pass by on a Monday morning, uh, the rates had dropped to perhaps one or two every minute at the height of the lockdown. Now it has notably picked up. We have seen massive protests or uh, we have seen protests, not massive ones. We have seen mass gatherings rather uh, in Hyde Park corner. People are obviously uh, following the government and there's a very strong risk now as a consequence uh, of the government's prioritising of the uh, economy over the health of the population that uh, we may see a second wave. Um, I saw a graphic yesterday which uh, says that uh, at the time that schools were closed in March, some 400 people had been confirmed as being infected with coronavirus and there were 36 deaths on that day, which I think was the 15th of May, the day that that graphic was made. There had been something like 3,000 new infections and 400 deaths. And this is the moment that the government is choosing to reopen schools. Uh, The unions... Uh, in the teaching sector, the National Union of Teachers and uh, or the National Education Union, as they now are, uh, as well as the uh, as NASWAT, National Association of Women Teachers, have been making very valid arguments to the governments that uh, that the schools definitely should not open, at least not without uh, proper risk assessments. So the unions are uh, making the case for uh, their members, but also, of course, the safety of their students and uh, their parents. It's a harrowing time, and I think it's disgraceful, this thing that the media likes to create, isn't there, that the workers want to go back to work, but it's the evil unions who are stopping them, and they will not let uh, our teachers be heroes. Uh, Callum? I'd say... uh what they describe as militant unions is is a complete well it's 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 a complete misrepresentation of what the unions are doing unions as you say they're protecting people's lives not just in terms of the the actual workers i.e the teachers in the cases of the schools but also the students because you've got to remember if if one teacher gets infected and they have a class of potentially 30 or more as we've as we've seen over recent years then those 30 children then go home to their family. And then with their family, they that's another potential three more people. And then they go out to work or to their other schools and then they have contact with other people. It's a very quick spreader. 
So to open up the schools isn't just putting the teachers at risk, but it's putting a the whole of society at risk. Really, a second wave will will appear if we allow the schools to open as is currently planned. I mean, even if you was to just open it up to more what would be considered key workers, maybe opening up the definition of what it means to be a key worker, that again is still endangering people because the minute you start making the school class sizes any bigger than they already are a bare bones, which is probably about 10 kids in the school, maybe a few more, the minute you start growing that is the minute you start endangering people. And if it's really that safe to go out, why aren't they meeting in Parliament? Why aren't they saying, let's reopen Parliament? Why are the private schools not reopening? And they're saying it's too un, too unsafe, so we're going to stay shut till September. Clearly, what I see is that they're seeing people as expendable. It's worth taking the risk on their lives because it's, a, it's about putting the economy first over people. And when you start doing that, we're going to lose more lives and it's going to be a big number. Mm. Uh, do you think, uh, Bradley, do you think that this is, um, this is, we could characterise this effectively as class war? Uh, because, I mean, I've just uh, seen another case study as well via uh, Huddersfield TUC. Um, one teacher says, and this is another uh, graphic, uh, one teacher tests positive for coronavirus 18 children are impacted and the fam- whole families are quarantined, everyone who lives with them. Um, and amongst those, there are then 18 healthcare and essential workers who can't go to work. And then on top of that, 30 teaching college, uh, colleges and their immediate families also need to quarantine. In total, over 200 people um, are affected. This isn't really uh, very sustainable, is it? But these are... Um, these are obviously all key workers and isn't it telling as well working class people isn't it telling as well that the private schools uh, aren't opening um, where they pay £40,000 per term per pupil Um, those places like Eton are not opening but the state schools yeah that's fine they can open instead yeah I mean I mean, first of all, you know, who, who do they think the unions are? They they are the workers. That's what a union is. So if, if the unions are calling for something, it's it's the workers that are calling for it. Uh, I, I'm yet to see a single teacher. And I know quite a few teachers. I'm yet to see a single teacher uh, or parent, actually, uh, say that they're happy for to be back in uh, at the start of June um, and that they're happy or they're happy for their children to, to go in at the start of June. There's two reasons when how we can safely uh, lift a lockdown. Either we've got a vaccine that's been trialled and it works, um, and we've got enough uh, samples of it to distribute it to, to enough of the population to, to develop immunity, which we don't have. Or um, we've brought the number of new cases a day down to a manageable level in which we can contact and trace them and quarantine those individuals and people that have been in contact with them. If if we and obviously we don't have that capacity either because we're still getting thousands and thousands of new cases a day. There's no hope that this government is going to be able to contact trace that many. And indeed, the, the, there's no suggestion that the government's going to be trying to do that either. Um, so that there's no way in which any easing of lockdown measures at this point is going to lead to anything other than a second wave and many many more deaths. There's just no way around it. 
Now, a lot, a lot of people are saying online, oh, well, there's no evidence that, uh, that, that, sh- that children can catch the virus or, or, that they can, or that they're very effective spreaders of the virus. But surely, in the, in the midst of a pandemic, if, there's no, if we don't yet know, if there's not evidence either way, then we should be you know, edging on the side of safety, which would be keeping schools closed. Because even if children can't be infected or, or anywhere near the level that, that adults can carry it, if you've still got tens of thousands of pupils go out to school mixing with thousands of adults that teach them, there's going to be infections. It's going to be it's going to be a vector for the virus to spread by. So you, you see the hero narrative, uh, and it's what we always suspected, wasn't it? When we saw more and more talk of nurses and, and doctors and, and other key workers being heroes, uh, that the suggestion of the rounds was that well, it makes it easier to accept their deaths, then, doesn't it? If if they're heroes, they're making a noble sacrifice for the country. In, in which case, you know, you, you almost expect people to die then, don't you? You, you expect heroes to die or, or to sacrifice to some extent. So, so if you've, you've spent weeks calling key workers heroes, then when they start dying, it's not really a surprise to anybody. And it's just sort of inevitable. That, that, that's the language that it is. And, and we're seeing that very obviously with papers like the Mail um, calling on, on teachers to be heroes. What, what they are essentially doing in that headline is asking teachers to die. That, that is what they're doing in that headline. Mm. Uh, yeah i was just going to pick up on the hero narrative i completely agree bradley it's it's it is basically preparing the public for the deaths of key workers whether it be nurses whether it be teachers whether it be you know whoever gets called back to work next whether you're working in a drive-through or something oh well you're all key workers therefore you're expendable because you're heroes that's completely wrong one death of somebody doing their job is unacceptable let alone hundreds let alone thousands so when unions are standing up for workers rights i think it's it's job of everybody to stand behind them because as you said the unions are made up of workers and if it's the workers saying they feel unsafe at work they have every right to not go in and if it's risking their life not just themselves but of their families and that's completely unacceptable. And they should have every right to stay at home. They should still be supported by the government. They should not be weaned off um, the furlough payments, as some people are suggesting, certainly Rishi Sunak, the chancellor. I think it's ridiculous that they're even discussing this because we're they, saying it themselves. We're at a critical moment in the time for our battle against COVID-19. And yet at the same time, they're rolling back the measures. If it's that critical, why are they rolling back the measures? Is it critical for their political careers? Is it because the, their backers of their party would actually rather see the economy get back to normality, whatever that means? So that means it, it's about support for their party, not about saving lives. Maybe. I don't know. But it, it's, it seems to be there's two messages. And, and you're right, Alan, when you alluded to at the start with, with Boris's speech, it was... It was garbage. It was all over the place. We had no idea what the message was. Go to work, but don't go to work. It's, it's, well, it's dangerous. It's damn right dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously it's worth reiterating at this point as well. Um, your legal right, section 44 of the Employment Rights Act 1996. If your workplace is dangerous, you have every right not to go into it they don't have to wait until someone else suffers an injury you know uh, to take action 
they have have the right to withdraw to and refuse to return to a workplace that is unsafe. That's the the key thing to remember. That's the advice from every unison, uh, from every union, including unison is what I meant to say, um, which, of course, uh, was also the first union to back Kia Starmer, the uh, Labour leader, uh, in his uh, leadership election. Um, just to, uh, as a, a quick aside, I saw that um, there had been some controversy over his response to those, uh, to to that advice. Um, I know that uh, the the uh, the Morning Star was accusing him of being uh, equivocal on the matter. Um, but I, I think what he had said was something along the lines of, um, uh, I don't think people should, uh, we think everyone should be safe at work or have to look into it, which suggests to me that maybe he wasn't briefed very well, uh, which is a bit worrying. Um, but there are more uh, tangible smears now coming out of, uh, coming at the uh, Labour leader. Uh, we may have seen uh, this story about uh, Kiyostama owns seven acres of land in Surrey worth £10 million. A man of the people, question mark, from uh, from a uh, notable uh, paper of record, uh, the Daily Mail. Uh, Kiyostama owns seven acres of land that could... I'm reading it so that you don't have to um, and give them ad revenue or anything like that. Uh, seven acres of land that could be worth up to ten million pounds. Uh, the property is on Greenbelt lands next to the Surrey home where he grew up. Uh, and uh, this was sort of used to almost say, "Look, you know, he's uh, he's uh, a, he's he's no man of the people. Look, he's a millionaire." But uh, there's more to this story, isn't there, Callum? Absolutely. Um, the the story itself. This piece of land he bought for his parents, um, I, I believe they've both now passed away, and this piece of land next to his family home is actually being used as a donkey sanctuary, as I understand it. So when we start slating Keir Starmer for this piece of land, you've got to remember that actually it's not a piece of development. It's on Greenbelt, so he can't develop on it without special planning permission. It's it's untouchable. So actually, this is 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 really not worth that much. It may be worth that much because it's in Surrey, but he can't make money out of it really. And if it's been used as a donkey sanctuary, it's a very, it's it's not exactly a, an ominous use of the land, and it isn't this feeding into this narrative of the Daily Mail that he isn't a man of the people. Now, certainly, he's a millionaire, and he's 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 notably he was a human rights lawyer, and he obviously be very expensive to hire but also we've got to remember that he is the leader of the Labour Party and now I've gone on record plenty of times for not agreeing with him certainly didn't back him in the leadership election but I certainly will back him in this instance in the Inland he's 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 clearly not going to use it for ill purposes he's not using it as a as a means to uh make loads of money it's it's money from a piece of land in his father's is in his late father's will that he has to sell off that was used for a donkey sanctuary that's it end of and i think it's the daily mail 
the fact it comes out of the Daily Mail says everything, because if it comes out of the Daily Mail, this is a paper that's failed to highlight the numbers of deaths properly, COVID-19. This is a newspaper that's failed to highlight countless times of MPs and high-profile Tory donors avoiding paying their tax. And it also has a clear record of not calling out people for using offshore accounts, amongst other scandals that we all can probably recall. So we've got to remember that this is a paper that's staunchly against the left. It's staunchly against the soft left, let alone the hard left. So when we look at the Daily Mail, it's not a paper for working people. It's the enemy of working people. It's a newspaper that puts out racist, vile stories, tries to slander the leader of the opposition, not just Jeremy Corbyn, but now we see it as Keir Starmer as well, and Ed Miliband before Jeremy Corbyn. So we've got to remember this, that this is not a paper that is by any means friendly to the Labour Party or to the left movement as a broader, as a broader thing. Oh, it does occur to me when I saw this story um, that if Keir Starmer were a Tory, then he would be lionised for for, uh, for what he's done. You know, oh, millionaire buys big piece of land to use as a donkey sanctuary. Isn't he a jolly good bloke? Um, you know, that's that that would that would be the story. Um, the uh, subjects of the uh, so obviously, uh, do, do you think it's um, do you think it's more important? that um, we should hold the leader of the Labour Party to account more uh, on trade union issues and, you know, actual things that matter. I suppose it's an obvious point. You know, he hasn't said that much about... uh, He said that we can't return to austerity, but he hasn't said that much about, you know, a pay rise for key workers, you know, improved working conditions in the long run, um he's been a little bit weak on uh ppe although he is improving on holding the government to account uh in terms of the number of deaths in care homes for example these are the important things uh to hold our leader of the opposition to account on and to help him in that respect not you know allowing him to be smeared as this enemy of the people um yeah so uh, and unfortunately, one of the biggest agents of uh, uh, this sort of the the villains, if you like, of this uh, of this COVID outbreak, uh, hasn't just been the Daily Mail. Um, it's also been well, it's the media in general. Um, I saw a thread the other day of um, people Brits living abroad primarily. Uh, who were obviously watching coverage of uh, the outbreak in the media in Italy and France and Spain and so on, Um, all of them reveal the incompetence and they can't quite believe that the British government is behaving the way it is in terms of opening up the economy before it's even... I mean, arguably, we could stay in lockdown until... um, until we've got a vaccine, but obviously that's a year away. Um, Places like New Zealand, for example, which have uh, 
almost entirely eliminated community transmission um, have open, started to cautiously open up their economies. Um, but that's because they are registering no infections. And obviously they're prepared to lock down again if they start to rise again. But the but there are still thousands of people being infected in this country every day and hundreds of people dying. Um, and yet at the same time, our media throughout this crisis has been completely uh, supine. Um, and uh, I just wanted to talk uh, talk about that a little bit, um, especially in the case of the BBC, which is our national state broadcaster. Uh, and what was your uh, question uh, before we started recording, Bradley? Uh, around the the license fee. Yeah, we we do have a slightly strange relationship with the BBC in this country compared to a lot of the state state media outlets. Um, it it's never quite made sense to me why we pay a license fee rather than having the BBC just simply funded out of general taxation. I've never never quite understood that. Mm-hmm. So what we have in most countries around the world that have um, a state broadcaster uh, is that they are indeed funded out of general taxation um, and they are the mouthpiece of the government. It's quite transparent in that respect. The BBC is a bit different because it is not directly funded by the government. Rather, it has the ability to effectively tax the population, those who have a TV, uh, directly um, through uh, a license fee, uh, which they can, uh, which uh, gives them an independent revenue stream. So it means that technically they are independent from the government. However, the abil- their ability to do that is enshrined into law, and at the moment it's still a criminal offence not to pay your license fee. But that ability to do that uh, is very much in the gift of Parliament and, by extension, the government of the day. And so the government of the day can exert considerable influence on the BBC. Um, We know this has always been the case to some extent. Um, It's been revealed in the last few years that uh, up until the end of the 20th century, um, MI5 was apparently heavily involved in uh, vetting uh, BBC employees to check their uh, whether they had any uh, commie inclinations, for example. Um, but uh, the particular hostility of the government towards the BBC really has its roots in the early days of uh, New Labour. Uh, during the Iraq war when the BBC quite rightly uh, intensively uh, scrutinised the governments of the day, Tony Blair's government uh, on uh, its, now we know, uh, um, slightly dodgy policy, shall we say, towards uh, the Middle East. Um, I just wondered if either of you had any thoughts on what to do about it, because one uh, one of the big advantages, one of the things that the British public really likes about the BBC, some of the one of the things I particularly like about it, um, is that uh, there are no adverts, you know. Um, and actually, if you look at um, if you wanted to buy television in the United States, um, you would pay as much as you would pay for the license fee just for a small set of channels. And if you wanted the full range, you could pay hundreds and hundreds of pounds. 
Um, so there's a material advantage to that. And obviously for that license fee, you get everything that the BBC provides for free. You know, Doctor Who, you get all the documentaries, uh, BBC Four, though it's under threat of being scrapped, I read the other day. Um, so how can we create um, a BBC or something like it, which is not in hock to the government, but at the same time, uh, isn't going to just be privatised and then just become um, uh, like the American system of, uh, of of media ownership. I think really the first thing we've got to do is is have the charters run a lot longer. Um, that's the first step. If you can remove the government, the government having to control the purse strings as much as possible. That's always a good step because financial control, as we know, is, is a is a key way to controlling industries, businesses, media organisations. Um, and then beyond that, I think that there should be some sort of document or some sort of um, governance behind the BBC that is is far more in in tune with with what people want. Um, so for it to be truly independent, so to have a, a complete removal from the government and from the, the ministers that might have ties to it in, in one way or another, or the behind-the-scenes people that might have an input. And then also I think um, it's it's got to be that the BBC itself is is more democratic, whether it be internally democratic or externally democratic. Um it's got to be far more accountable in that sense. And I think that that would be a, a good way to at least release it from the shackles of, of government that, that we currently see, that it's it's very much weighed down. And it's got so much great potential with the BBC because commercial news is is rubbish. It really is. It's garbage. It's I don't think news should have a commercial um, interest. It should be journalism for the sake of exposing scandals journalism for the sake of reporting the facts not for putting a slant on it for a commercial partner so i think that the, the bbc we shouldn't certainly shouldn't scrap it we shouldn't certainly shouldn't privatize it but we should start to chisel it away from the hands of the government i mean the um one solution that uh, tony ben thought of in the 1960s um was to have um, a state-owned broadcaster, but one that was funded by advertising, and that was uh, Channel 4. Uh, that, that's what that became. Um, the real purpose of that really was to produce content for the University of the Air, um, which became the Open University, um, rather than as an alternative news source. Um, although, obviously, it did acquire, I believe, its own um, news channel later. Um, but obviously that does still mean that the, uh, the channel four can still be influenced by advertisers and by the state. Um, I had a more radical thought, which was that you could potentially mutualize it, um, which would be, uh, you, you give everyone who works there directly for the BBC, um, a share and you also give a share to everyone who pays the license fee. And then between them, they elect uh, the 
board that runs the corporation. Now, of course, there is a risk there that it could become a bit like Lincolnshire Cooperative, for example, um, where there isn't a high level of participation and it's run effectively like a corporation. But I think if there's an emphasis that the employees are given shares as well, I think they would have a much higher interest in um, in organising and having themselves elected to the board, and that might give them more editorial independence. And um, obviously, uh, and then just turn it into a subscription service, which would be perfectly legal. You wouldn't need the charter. Um, that would be my way of, uh, of of reforming it. Obviously, there is a risk that, uh, as like um, the uh, the great credit unions uh, that uh, were dominant in British uh, British banking in the 20th century, uh, like the Abbey National, for example, um, could they, they could vote to uh, privatise it. That's a possibility, and we have to guard against that. But I think we have to do something to reform the BBC, um, otherwise the situation is going to continually uh, replicate itself. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about today? I know I've talked a lot today for some reason. Have you um, heard of the advice that the GMB are giving out to their carers? Um, I was reading a story today, and apparently the GMB are telling carers, that are their members, not to download the government app. Apparently the government app, it, I, I think you shared this story, Callum. I did, yes. Um, um, they were... Uh, Apparently, the, the app allows the, the management to see what the carers are saying, which is obviously a complete breach of confidentiality. Yes, the, the, the people who made the app are arguing that um, uh, it, it's a comment function um, and therefore those comments are public uh, and, uh, and therefore there's no, there's no need for secrecy. But evidently that isn't clear. Um, and... Uh, and I think the advice, therefore, still stands, because that you shouldn't, you shouldn't basically be airing uh, your views on that sort of thing directly to management without going through uh, a formal process, um, because uh, you know, um, without the proper way in a workplace uh, to raise your concerns is to speak for, for in the first instance speak directly with your line manager and if that doesn't work you raise a formal grievance you put it in and you put everything in writing where you can so you speak to them informally if you're not getting anywhere then you send an email that's step two step three you raise a formal grievance and call for a hearing and all of that um, if the grievance doesn't get anywhere then obviously um, the employer is potentially, in cases like COVID, for example, health and safety and pay, um, you are potentially re um, risking legal action, which the union will back you up on. But the union will not be able to back you up on those points unless you followed the formal process. So that's the reason I suspect why this uh, advice has been given, because just making a comm out in the, out in the air um, without going through the proper channels, um, as they would say, um, they could in, uh, they could turn around and say, "Well, you, you made no effort to to raise this properly, 
you know, you didn't speak to us about it. So therefore, all you're doing is slandering the organization, bringing it into disrepute, if I can use a uh, a phrase which might trigger both of you. Um, you know, you're bringing it into disrepute and, and you're lying. Um, that's what that's uh, that's what the employer will turn around and say. And then that potentially undermines um, any cases going forward. Um, it, it, it perjures it, basically. Um, is, is what they would say in a, in a, in a legal context. Um, so that's, that's the advice I, I would say to, uh, to workers, is that if you have concerns in the workplace, raise them loudly, uh, raise them. Um, but there's a, a proper way to do it. And it's not just a, a case of doing it as an individual whistleblower. You actually should t- talk to your colleagues about it. People should talk to their colleagues about it more because actually the more people, what the, the mechanism specifically is called a collective grievance. Um, so you have, uh, and you don't even, uh, people who join it don't even have to be members of a union to start with. Um, so long as you have uh, a fully fledged member of a trade union uh, who is, the sort of lead signatory, if you like, to a collective grievance about a health and safety issue. Um, anyone who joins the grievance and then joins the union, um, they must do both of those things, um, will then also be given that support. So there's no lead time. You don't have to be a member for four weeks, as the case for Unison may be different for other unions. Um, and that way, you, as a body of workers, are collectively saying to the employer, you need to do something to keep us safe um, and to improve our conditions or improve our pay or whatever. And this applies to all situations, not just um, with COVID specifically. And the other advantage as well, of course, is that if people do that, it means that the next time an issue like that arises, it will be much easier to deal with or might not even arise at all. Because as I think I've said before, um, very often, actually, um, I've had cases um, as a as a caseworker where um, someone's got in touch, they've sent me an email about an issue they're having in the workplace, um, and by the time I ring them um, later in the day to follow up on it, um, it's already been sorted because they've told their <laughs> they've told their manager that they've consulted the, uh, the union on it and they've backed off immediately. So that's the power in a union. Um, and that's why that issue from the GMB has has been uh, has been issued. Um, you have to raise these issues. You must raise these issues. But you have to talk to your colleagues about doing it. Do it collectively and do it through the union. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably a good uh, a good bit to uh, end it on. I know that uh, at once again, uh, Mary McKay uh, was supposed to be on today. Um, but uh, hopefully we might uh, have her on uh, at some point in the future. I understand Harry Parekh is interested in coming back, and uh, also potentially uh, my boss uh, has said she might be interested in, in coming on the uh, sec- uh, branch secretary for Lincolnshire Unison Health branch, and so she'll be able to speak, I'm sure, with uh, even more authority than me about uh, the plight of uh, healthcare workers uh, in, in Lincolnshire. Um, so she'll be on at some point Um, but until that point uh, our dear viewers uh, I thank you for listening my name's Callum Watts and it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Callum goodbye everyone remember the message join a union if you haven't
And if you don't don't feel safe to go to work, just don't go. And Bradley also. Yeah. Bye, folks. Thanks for listening. And we will see you next time.